two people walking along from the road from um, Jerusalem to, to Emmaus. It's about seven miles from Jerusalem. And verse 14, and they were conversing with each other about all the things that had taken place. And it came about that while they were conversing and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he, being Jesus, said, what are these words that you were exchanging with one another as you were walking? And they stood still, looking sad. Um, one of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? This is Jesus saying, what things? <laughs> and they said to him, the, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty indeed and, and word and the sight of God and all the people and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to the sentence of death and crucified. And catch this phrase here. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us were ama um, amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they also had seen a vision of angels and said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it exactly as the woman had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. I'm going to stop there. I've often thought I would have loved to have been a mouse in Jesus' pocket <laughs> or one of those guys to listen as Jesus starts in the beginning and just explains the whole thing, the whole story in terms of this is the big picture. And, um, you know, sometimes um, we need to be reminded of the big picture. And so that's, that's what I want to try to attempt to do in some measure this morning is just kind of create a big picture of what's going on. And, you know, we need to know that so, so often... Um, when we share the gospel, we start with the life of Jesus. And that's the beautiful thing. And we kind of, we forget that's in context. And who is Jesus and the whole, what came before Jesus. It'd be kind of like somebody coming from, um, let's say, um, I'll just pick a country, um, Romania, who doesn't understand our government thing. And you try to explain to them um, what's going on in our government right now with the impeachment. Well, you say, well, first of all, First of all, you have to understand the three branches of government, right? To understand impeachment, because otherwise it wouldn't have any context. You'd, um, you'd have to know that um, there are two main parties who are contesting, and this is a big thing of that. You'd have to know that um, the Constitution. You'd have to know the basis of understanding of the Constitution. You'd have to know that we are a republic, that we became a democracy. And, of course, to do that, you'd have to kind of know how we, we gained our independence from, from Britain, um, all that in order to explain, to have a real understanding of what's going on with this impeachment. Now, even if you knew all that, you still wouldn't understand what's going on with impeachment. <laughs> but having that, that breadth of information would sure help give a context to saying, oh, okay, I get it. So there's three branches of government, and the Democrats are trying to do this, and Republicans are trying to do this. And um, it would grab, grab a whole different 
um, depth to it. So <clears throat> this morning, um, I'm going to attempt to do that. And as we go through, um, so I'm going to, I'm going to, in the time that I'm allotted, I'm going to go through from Genesis to the life of Jesus. It sounds like an impossible task. And it is. But we're just going to pick highlights. But as we do this, remember, this is, this is history. But it's more than history. Okay? It's more than just moral lessons. It's more than just character studies. It's more than just examples. It's more than just Sunday school material. This, is, this has a very significant purpose of why God recorded what he did. You know, there's a lot of things that weren't recorded. And for some reason... The Spirit of God chose these things to record for us so that we have a history for a very specific purpose. And so um, we also want to remember that these are real people who they were living this story. You know, we, we, we read these stories, and, and especially if you already know it, you kind of flip the page, you know what's going to happen. Well, man, um, these guys, they were living this out. This was not, they didn't have the next page to turn to. This was this was just raw raw stuff and they were just trusting God and when God said go do this it was like uh, okay but uh, uh, oh sure okay I mean that's a whole different thing when we put ourselves so try as we can to put ourselves in some stage into this um, another interesting thing as we go through these, these stories is that um, unlike um, other world religions God records the blemishes he just doesn't tell the good things about the people. If I were going to write a history about myself, I would be tempted to just say the good things I did <laughs> and leave out all the nonsense and the stuff that would make me look really bad. And yet God isn't worried about his image being tarnished by sharing all these different stories about people who, man, they totally blew it, just like you and I. And, um, but it, there's a purpose. Okay, so let's just remember that. So, a number of themes that we could emphasize, but as we go through that, you, be, you help me out. This will be interactive, okay? And so as we listen, what are some of the themes that you're, you're hearing in these repetitive, repetitive kind of themes as we go through the story? Some of them, of course, is that um, God is sovereign. He, he is the one who's writing the story. Um, he has a very specific purpose for the story. This is not, God's not caught off guard going, oh boy, what in the world am I going to do now? Um, you know, Jonah went the wrong way. <laughs> He's not there wringing his hands going, oh, okay, I got to make up a new story here. We're also going to see the seriousness of sin. And, um, but we also see throughout this story that there's a plan of redemption. This is not just a hopeless story of, man, they totally blew it and now they're going to hell. That's not the story at all. This is a plan. This is a story of redemption. And we're going to see that God is good, that he is trustworthy, and that's over and over. This is about God's glory, not just our entertainment and not just our happiness. Um, so those are some things to be looking for as we go through the story. Okay, so um, I'm going to use a little visual aid. Ellie, once you, you got that video you can stick up? Okay, here we are. You recognize that place? That's where we sit. Now we're going to take a journey over to a different part of the earth um, where these events happened. So we're going to use a, a map to kind of help us. Um, here we are leaving Colorado. And we're going to, um, we're going to visit the Middle East where these next um, 
events take place. So goodbye, North America. We're going to turn this globe and go over a spot. We're probably, anybody been over to Israel? One. Cool. <clears throat> okay, so this is where this story takes place. Um, in case you're not familiar, this is, this is Israel. This right here is the Dead Sea and Sea of Galilee. Um, this is the Red, I'm sorry, not the Red Sea. This is the Dead Sea. This is the Red Sea right here, Persian Gulf, Mediterranean Sea. And uh, you can flip to that next slide. So um, have you ever wondered why God chose that particular spot in, on the planet to reveal his story? Um, so this is a circle where we're going we're gonna to be talking about this morning. I mean, if I were, good thing, if I were writing the story, I probably would have chosen the Hawaiian Islands. <laughs> okay? I mean, good weather. And look at, in the standpoint of all the conflict that Israel had with enemies and all that kind of stuff, it could have been really easy. We could have eliminated a whole lot of nonsense just by doing that. Um, and of course, you know, Colorado would have been a good choice too. I mean, it's pretty pretty back, backdrop for all these stories. Um, but God chose that for a reason. And we'll maybe talk a little bit about maybe some of the reasons. Um, but he, he, remember, God is trying to display his glory. One One interesting thing is that this part of the world is a major trade route for what's going on in terms of Europe going to India, China, a um, lot of civilization, Egypt right here, um, and in, in world history was a big player in a lot of different things. And so right here in the middle of all this, God chose to display his people and his work in people's lives. So when the people were walking in obedience, the whole world saw it. When the people were walking in rebellion, everybody saw it. Um, God is not worried about <laughs> his reputation, the sense of uh, revealing um, when his people go astray, which is a really interesting, interesting thing. I, I, um, I love that. So I have with me a little visual aid. This is my picture of that. Okay? Don't laugh. <laughs> and um, so you can kind of see this is the Mediterranean Sea. This is the Nile River, Egypt right here the Red Sea, um, Sea of Galilee, uh, Dead Sea, Sea of Galilee. This is the Euphrates River, the Tigris River, um, the Persian Gulf. This is where our story, and you can't see, can you? Yep. You can? Okay. And um, so, and I'm also going to use, um, I'm not going to use this as a timeline. This is creation. Okay, somebody under the age of 12, what's the first verse of the Bible? Genesis 1-1, right? And what does it say? In the beginning, God created. You know what? If we get that first phrase right, we'll get the rest of the book. In the beginning, God. If you believe in that, the rest of it makes sense. If you don't accept that, none of it's going to make sense. It will not. So in the beginning, God created the world. And of course, we know the story about Adam and Eve. I put them in the garden in um, we don't know. We don't know exactly where that was. We just don't know that. Okay, but we know that there was perfect relationship between man, uh, man and woman, between God and His environment. Everything was great. And then, unfortunately, we know at the very, very beginning, um, something happened. Bible calls it sin. When um, 
They chose not to believe God and to act independently. And that changed everything. Everything. So the rest of the story, this is the timeline, okay? Where we're going, we're going to the cross. Okay? But the rest of the story is focused on resolving this issue. That's that big. That big of an issue where all of a sudden, man can't relate to each other right, he doesn't relate to environment right, and most importantly, his relationship with God is, is totally, totally changed. He is separated from God, and there is sin in the world, and God says he cannot, he cannot tolerate and, 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 um, and look on sin as if it didn't happen. And so, but right there in the, in early on, God promises that there's going to be coming a redeemer. In the very beginning, there is hope saying it's coming. Now, again, if I were writing the story, good thing I'm not. If I would have written the story, I probably would have had Jesus come about chapter 5 of Genesis. <laughs> okay? It's like, why, why, why all this nonsense? Okay, let's get the show on the road, snap to it, and have the Redeemer come. But God's about something bigger than this. This is a story, and this is, by the way, I take a young earth view, and so if you put the gene genealogy together, we're talking about 4,000 years until the time of Christ, okay? So I would have chosen it differently. And again, good thing I wasn't, okay? Um, so unbelief comes in. Um, Cain and Abel, we know the story of there. Um, and so it doesn't really go well um, for the first um, period of history. In fact, it doesn't go very good for the whole time of history. And yet, within, well, the first thing that kind of major thing that comes on is that... Um, and kids, help me out. Noah built a what? Ark. ark. What's an ark? Big boat. How big is it? Do you remember? Ah, you got me. I can't remember. It's, a, it's big, though. It's like a football field big, right? Okay, so if this is, if this is midway, where's the middle of my chart here? About right here, yeah. Okay. Uh-oh. Let's try a different one. Um, so about right here, we'll draw an ark. Okay? Noah's ark. And why did, why did God have Noah build an ark? Pardon? Okay, because he was going to send a flood. Now, um, we once, wasn't it? No, I guess not. I've seen a lot of children's rooms that have um, cute stories of an uh, ark. And the little giraffe sticking their head out, and you know, the elephants and all this kind of stuff are sitting in this, this real happy little picture, right? You know what I've never seen? I've never seen a picture of the ark with the people in the water drowning. Have you? We kind of like to almost avoid that kind of part of the story, but God did it. He had an ark for a purpose because he was, trying to, he was trying to say something. First of all, the ark's a picture of redemption, right? For those who get in the ark, he says, there is salvation for union. But yeah, it's a, cute, it's a cute story in one sense, but it's not just a children's story that we paint on the walls of our nurseries. This is a picture of what God's redemptive activity is. And when we choose to go a different way, there are consequences that are very serious. Now, again, um, Noah was asked to do something quite, I'm going to use this respectfully, quite crazy. Okay, a really ridiculous thing. Build this huge boat, okay? And you know what he did? He did something even absolutely more crazy. He obeyed. He did something that 
probably sounded completely ridiculous, and he obeyed, and God just blessed the socks off him. Okay, and there's a theme. Be, be watching for this, okay? Now, again, if I were, if I were writing the story, I would have waited a few thousand years until there's at least a Lowe's or a Menards or something like that that you can go to and get your lumber, right? Because why make this thing hard? Why, why so difficult? And yet we'll find out that, you know what, God does not apologize to Noah. He's not coming, hey, buddy, you know, I'm really sorry to ask you to do this. And, and after the flood, he doesn't come and apologize. Because God is about something much bigger than just Noah's comfort and his happiness on his journey of life. God is about a big plan. <clears throat> okay, now an interesting thing that just in, is, infiltrates the whole scripture is God is on a plan and he's doing things that sometimes we don't, we don't quite know even the depth. So, you know what day the, the ark comes to rest on Mount Ararat? Bible tells us what day it is. And it happens to be, this is before the law is given, it's the first fruits. Do you think that's an accident? Do you think it's an accident that God would choose to have something rest on a feast day? I don't think so at all. I think if we knew the backstory between a lot of these things would go, our minds are going to be blown apart when we get to heaven. We hear all these different things that are happening on certain days because God is a planner of order and he has purpose. And, and some of them we get to know, some of them we don't. Okay, so um, people get off the ark um, and it then goes just great after that, right? Everybody just says, oh, wow, God loves us. He has a plan for our lives and we're just going to follow him. No, it didn't happen that right. So the next major event is um, people said, you know what? I think I'm going to build myself a, what kids? Tower, exactly. And because they wanted to, God told them to disperse, and they weren't ready to do that. They weren't ready to obey God. And so they chose their own way. They built a tower. They wanted a name for themselves. And um, it's called disobedience. It's called rebellion. And God judged it. He, he changed the language. And um, that complicated life. Then God does something uh, like God always does. He chose somebody um, I'll use this map. He chose somebody way down in Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, who can tell me why God chose Abraham? Abram. What do the scriptures say about Abraham? Okay, does it say that before what God called him? We don't know. Obviously, God had a plan. And obviously, he knew that Abraham was going to say yes. Um, but it's an amazing thing how Abraham, um, God calls Abraham to do something pretty ridiculous. And I say that respectfully. Okay. But in the human realm, he asked him to leave his family. And this was an affluent culture down in Ur of the Chaldean. This is not a bunch of tent dwellers there. This was a, uh, um, this was, this was an up and coming place. And he tells them to go to a place that you've never seen, and God promises something. He promises something really big, actually. He says, I'm going to, in Genesis 12, which is, I won't, I won't read it this morning, but he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, and I'm going to bless your seed, your descendants. I'm going to bless the land, and I'm going to make you a blessing to, um, to other nations. <clears throat> and do you remember the story when, he, when um, God again visits Abraham after he's left, and he says, uh, look at the stars, Abraham, and believe that I am. And I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars. 
Um, so Abraham, he does something which is, like I say, it, it sounds almost a little bit crazy, but he leaves Ur of the Chaldeans and he goes up, he goes up first to Haran and stays there for a while until um, his father dies. And then eventually Abraham goes into the promised land. It's about 600 miles. If I was writing this story, I would have waited until at least the bus. You know, a train, take the Amtrak or something? No. No, God didn't apologize to Abraham. <clears throat> um, and so Abraham's over there going, okay, God, um, you, you promised me that I'm going to be, I'm gonna be a, um, uh, my, my descendants are going to be like the sand of the seashore, but there's a problem here. No kids. Um, and then God gives him, he, Abraham goes and has a, has a son Ishmael in a way that God did not design. Um, but then God, um, finally, when Abraham, anybody remember how old Abraham was when he had um, Isaac? He was 100 years old. Sarah, 90. Anything sound a little bit unusual about that? <laughs> um, again, this, there's a bunch of unusual stuff going on in this story, okay? So God um, gives him a son in his old age. An amazing thing. The blessing that he's been waiting for. And then he asks him to do something really, I'm going to say this respectfully, ridiculous. He asks him to take his son up on a mount and to sacrifice him. And Abraham does something crazy. He obeys. He says, God, okay, I don't understand this, um, but I'm going to do that. So he goes up there, and of course we know that what an incredible thing how um, in Genesis 22 it, when, and when Abraham's on the way up and Isaac asks him, so, so well, where's the sacrifice? He said, God will provide himself a sacrifice, which is a prophetic statement. And not only the fact that he's going to have a ram, but that, that on that, on the very same mountains when he went up to make the sacrifice someday um, that Jesus Christ would be the, the sacrifice he would provide for himself a lamb. Um, and there's no reason to believe that it wasn't, it won't, it's not the very same mountain where Isaac offered up his son, the sons of Moriah. So Isaac has a son, Isaac. Um, God chooses Isaac of all, all the sons. And um, he um, confirms the, the covenant again with, with um, Isaac. And um, Isaac has himself um, a son and um, Jacob. And in fact, um, Jacob's name is changed to Israel, which becomes the name of the, of the nation. And he has 12 sons. And we know the story about 12 sons. And, um, but it doesn't go real, real easy. Um, one of the sons, Joseph, of course, um, was sold into slavery. He ends up down in Egypt. Bad deal, right, for, for Joseph? And yet God does the amazing thing and says what man meant for evil, he redeems and... Um, he brings um, the family. There were like 70 people at that time that went, left because of the famine, went down into Egypt. So his little tribe of 70 people go into Egypt, and we know what happens there. It's, um, by the way, I'm kind of getting um, a little ahead of myself here. So Abraham, about the year 2000, okay? And these are, these are rough dates, but they're actually pretty close. His life intersected in the, um, 
Okay, fifteen hundred here. Year one thousand. Can't read my writing, but <clears throat> um, so Joseph goes, and then the family comes later. They go into Egypt. Then how many years are they in Egypt? Four hundred years. They become slaves and live in Egypt. That's a long time. Now, again, if I were writing the story, I would have said you could have made your point in four years. Okay, 400 is a long time to be in captivity. Um, so here's, here's these people of God who are, who are waiting for this Redeemer, waiting for, for some, uh, this Messiah, um, and they're waiting a long time. And you know what? I don't get a sense that God's in a hurry. Do you get a sense like that? doesn't seem like he's in a hurry. Do we ever... Um, <laughs> Do we ever think, God, can you kind of speed this thing up and get up a little bit? <laughs> we go, man, I've been waiting for two years and whatever. This, this thing hasn't happened or this hasn't happened. Or, Lord, what do you want me to do about this thing? Or my decisions, my career. Or, Lord, I'm, I'm not married yet and I've been waiting for this many years. And, and um, oh, my goodness. <laughs> um, and God doesn't seem to be apologizing to any of those people for how long things take. Because he has an agenda and it's much bigger than just our comfort. So God does something amazing in, in Egypt. Um, he raises up a leader who grows up in the household of Pharaoh. Anybody help me with the name, children? Who, what child grew up in the household of Pharaoh? No, Joseph went there first. A little basket. Moses, okay. So God chooses this, this um, man. He, is, he grows up as a son of Pharaoh. And for about 40 years, he lives there. He tries to set the people free in his own strength, and that's a disaster. He goes off into the desert for another 40 years, and then God visits him in a burning bush, which is a little bizarre, really, isn't it? <laughs> but he speaks to him in this amazing way and says, um, I've got a job for you, Moses. I want you to go back to Egypt, and I want you to um, set my people free. And Moses says, I kind of stutter. I'm not a good speaker. Um, and yet God had ordained this man. Okay, he's probably 80, he's 80 years old now, right? And he says, I want you to go and do this task for me. So Abraham does, I mean, uh, Moses does something pretty ridiculous. And so Moses is about the year 1500 BC. That's when that takes place. <clears throat> um, And he, so right now we're at, we're still in Genesis. Okay, look at the world history. Okay? We just left the book of Genesis. There's a lot of things that happened there, okay? Um, um, but it's a small part of the Bible, prospectively. So Abraham does what God asked him to do. He does a crazy thing and he obeys. He goes there. We know the story about how he goes there and the Pharaoh says, no, there are 10 plagues. And um, on, then he says, okay, the 10th tenth, the tenth plague is going to be um, the firstborn. And he says, he institutes the whole idea of the Passover. And he says, he's going to put the blood on the doorpost. Okay, put the blood on the poor doorpost. Have a, have a lamb. And he says, unblemished lamb, slain, no broken bones, roasted, eaten in haste, nothing remaining till the morning. Um, and he, he institutes this, this feast. As a picture of, if you walk in obedience to me, you put the blood over the doorpost, I will pass over. I will see the blood and not kill your firstborn. Which is a picture of something that's going to be happening later on, of course. So, the people of Israel, 
leave through a miraculous thing. They go through the Red Sea. Okay? Now, wouldn't that have been a great time for the Messiah to show up? I mean, wow, that would have been a dramatic thing. He could have been born in, in Egypt, and he could have come out there and just kind of just instituted his kingdom right then and there, and then they could have gone on to the promised land. Again, I'm not writing the story, and it's a good thing, okay? Um, so they, um, they cross through the Red Sea, an amazing thing. Um, and um, God delivers them, and then they go into the... They go into the desert, and then somewhere down here at Mount Sinai, God gives the law to the people. Okay, this is the first mention we have of the, of the law. And then, of course, that's the Ten Commandments that um, he wrote with his finger, but much more than that, he instituted all the different feasts and um, all the different ceremonial things, the sacrificial things. He told them how to build a tabernacle and the purpose of the tabernacle, which was just a, a shadow of things that were to come. Institutes the priesthood. And, um, and so, um, we, we wish that we could say that the people obeyed everything that, that Moses said in the, uh, that God wrote in the law, but of course we know that's not the, the case. And so then they're on their way to the promised land, right? Cause that's where they're headed. So they head off, they go to Kadesh Barnea, and then they send in 12 spies into the promised land. <laughs> Who can tell me the name of, um, um, two of the spies? Joshua and Caleb. Okay, I named one of my sons Caleb. Great name, isn't it? And there's probably some Joshua's in this room, but I wouldn't be surprised. Okay, who can, who can tell me the names of the other ten spies? They're in the scripture. The scripture tells who they are. My guess is we didn't name our children after those guys. <laughs> Why not? They're not good examples. Okay. Okay, they, they didn't have faith, did they? And really, Caleb and, and um, Joshua, their report was pretty amazing. The only reason they saw it differently is they said, we have a big God. We have a very big God. Um, because, you know what? There were giants in the land, and there was a lot to fear. Um, they had every reason in the world to fear. Unless you believed in a big God who had a plan, who um, said, I'll bless you if you walk in obedience to me. <clears throat> so, we know that they... Um, they wander around in the wilderness for 40 years, and um, they don't get to enter into the, the promised land. But then God chooses another man. He chooses Joshua, who is Moses' sidekick. He had been hanging around with um, um, Moses actually a lot when you look through um, the scriptures. And he leads them in to the promised land. Okay, after 40 years, they go right to the edge, and then... Um, Deuteronomy, which means, you know, the second given of the law. That's what it is. Um, so it's Moses kind of giving the law to the people before they go into the promised land. Moses doesn't get to go. And um, so then um, Joshua is asked to go in and to reconquer the land. Well, I shouldn't reconquer, but there's, there's all sorts of people moved in there, and God said, you have to go in there. And uh, first, first task is um, Jericho. Now, let's be honest. What God asked Joshua to do sounds a little bit on the ridiculous side, isn't it? March around the thing seven times in the last day, and the walls fall down. Um, and really, it took faith to be able to do that, okay? I'm going on, by the sixth day, I'm going, God, what's going on here? Um, <laughs> um, couldn't have you just done it one time? 
Really, I mean, that's what I would have asked. God, one day is enough. Why seven? All these laps and stuff. But God's making a point. He's trying to show us something. One of them, of course, is, you know what? I'm trustworthy. Believe me. Walk in obedience, and I'll bless you. That's his promise. That's what he said back to Abraham. So they do this. And then a real little side point is that um, Rahab the what? You know, it's interesting in Hebrews... In Hebrews 11, <laughs> when, when they're going through the, the heroes of the faith, that Rahab is called Rahab the harlot. She is in the bloodline of the Messiah. She was an outsider who was grafted in because of her faith. She said, I want to be a people of God. And God, she became part of the lineage through Abraham into the messianic Bloodline into uh, which is an amazing story of redemption, isn't it? Um, and I've often thought, you know, it's like, <laughs> oh, so your name is Rahab. Uh, Rahab, yes, <laughs> Rahab the harlot. <laughs> that was before. That was before I followed Jesus. <laughs> it's kind of like in the New Testament. There's Simon the leper, and it mentions him after the fact as Simon the leper. So are you Simon? Um, you Simon, yeah, I'm Simon, the, not anymore, not the leper anymore. <laughs> and that's because God healed me. But it's like they, um, and I go, I'm, I'm Steve the wretch. <laughs> but you know, not anymore. <laughs> now I'm Steve the righteous one because God has redeemed me. And we all have things in our past that we're not proud of. Um, but man, we have a redeemer who's, who, who gives us a new name like, um, like our song did this, um, said this morning. So Joshua goes in, um, interesting, he crosses, they, they celebrate the Passover, they go in and Feast of First Fruits is the feast day that they enter into the new land. The manna stops and they eat the produce of the new land. Um, by the way, Feast of First Fruits is when Jesus, the feast in which Jesus rose from the grave. Okay, it comes right after Passover, three days after the Passover, after the end of Passover. So they go in, they conquer the land, and it says that the people during Joshua's era, they followed God. It's an amazing story. And then after Joshua, there are judges who come in. And that's really, there's some great stories in the book of Judges, but it's really a sad, um, it's a really a sad time because the people kind of follow the, the judge, and then they get, in, they get in a mess, and then there's this cycle that says they did what was right in their own eyes, and they just totally miss it. And so for several hundred years, there are judges that rule the land. And we're, we're familiar with some of the popular ones like Gideon and Samson. Um, those are great stories. Um, so God asked Gideon to do something. What did he ask Gideon to do? Fight an army. And how many soldiers did God tell him to fight with? 300. Now, doesn't that sound a little bit... Um, out of the ordinary? It does, doesn't it? And yet, yet Gideon says, okay, God, that's what you've asked me to do. And he goes, and of course, God shows himself mighty. And who gets the credit at the end of that day? Gideon, because he's such a great fighter? Or the God who, who Gideon served and said, okay, I'll, I'll obey you. I will, I will walk your ways. So great stories. Ruth comes in that time. And then, and then there is a time of, of um, uh, judges. And then there's the... Um, um, prophets, okay? When, so Samuel is uh, the last of the judges. He's also a prophet. And then the nation says, you know what? We want a king. We want to be like the other nations. 
And um, that's cool. You know, that's hip. And we kind of want to do the thing like everybody else is doing. And so they say they want a king. And so God says, okay, this is what's going to happen if you get a king. You're going to get the taxation and you're going to get all this and all that. And they said, well, you want a king. So God says, okay, I'll give you a king. Who can tell me who the first king was? Saul. That's right. And uh, that didn't go so well because he didn't uh, obey for 40 years. He served the people. And then God, God chose somebody out of the ordinary. Wasn't the firstborn. It wasn't the whatever he chose. King. Help me out. Second king of Israel. David. David. Right. Okay. So that's the year. 1,000 before Christ, King David, he, he, he um, like, like 980 or something, but he, he lived over that period and served as a king. And uh, we know that David was a, heart, a man after God's own heart. And God promised that through, through his bloodline that the Messiah was going to come. Okay, now we're still, David doesn't know this, but he's still 1,000 years off. From Jesus, okay? That means if the bloodline ceases through the tribe of Judah, through the tribe of David, um, God failed. Because the Messiah has to come through the bloodline, through Judah, a descendant of Abraham, through the tribe of Judah, um, through the bloodline of David, the Messiah, because that was, that was a prophecy. And... Um, so David uh, serves the, ki- the kingdom. He has a son named Solomon, okay? And Solomon was a wise, wise man. And then so- Solomon had two sons, Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And something very sad happened during his reign. Um, the nation of Israel, um, the nation of Israel divided. They had a civil war, Okay? And there were 10 tribes to the north, two tribes to the south, Judah and Benjamin. So this, this part of the nation was called Israel. This was called Judah. And this happened like in right after Solomon's reign, about 922 years. Um, so I'll, I'll diagram this here, right here, just going, okay, there's two kingdoms we got going on. We got Israel and we've got Judah. The nation divided. So um, that never did rejoin again. So we, you know, we think so often that the, um, um, we think of Israel, we think of uh, these kings, we think of all this, these, um, well, we know the days of Solomon, that was the highlight of the, the, the empire. I mean, it was just like Queen Sheba came and it was like, they were the world, they were the hot thing on the, wor- on the world in terms of kingdoms. But you know, it didn't last as long as sometimes we think. Um, the, the kingdom split after David, Solomon, and then Rehoboam. It didn't last very long before the kingdom split. Okay, two, two kings, 80 years, and then shortly after that, it split and divided. And then we've got this fighting going on. There's no unity. And, and then God, during, um, after the split is when, when um, God starts sending um, um, prophets into the nation to, to forewarn them. So um, of, the, of the northern kingdom, um, there, were, there were 19 kings in the northern kingdom. 
during its, during its, its time. Guess how many of the kings were good and how many were bad? Okay. There were some who started off. There were zero kings in the northern kingdom who ended up following after God. And the whole nation of Israel, the northern part. In the southern part, in Judah, there were 19 kings. Um, eight of them were good. And those are ones that we sometimes use to choose our children. The, the Hezekiahs, the Josiahs, the Asas. Um, so in, in 931, the kingdom split. Um, God sends prophets like Elijah. Elisha saying, you guys, you are going the wrong way. Repent, turn from your ways. He sends Isaiah. He sends Jeremiah. Um, he sends Ezekiel to tell these people. Then there's all sorts of different minor prophets. Um, and then finally, God um, chooses to judge the nation, the, the northern thing. And in, in 722, he sends the Assyrians, which is up here. Um, this is the Tigris. By the way, Nineveh is right. Nanny, help me out, Mary. Nanny. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a very good speller, so I just kind of... Um, Assyria, where Mosul is right now in Iraq. That's where Nineveh was. God sent the Assyrians in to, to defeat the northern tribes of Israel, the ten tribes, and to take them off into captivity. Okay, that was his judgment. That's what he forewarned him through the prophets, never to return again as a nation. Pretty sad. Um, ten of the tribes. <clears throat> the southern kingdom lasted for longer, but then in the year 600 B.C., um, God prophesies through Jeremiah, says the Babylonians, who would conquer the Syrians down here in Babylon, which is real close to Baghdad right now, they came in, they took, this is a mess, I know, but it's right. They came in and they took the people, and for 70 years, they went into captivity, the southern kingdom, Judah. That's during the time of Daniel. We know the story of Daniel. That happened during that time. A Dif couple different exiles, they took them out. And yet, in God's sovereignty, he, he rose up a king named Cyrus who said, you know what, I think I'm going to let you go back to Israel and build a temple. Rebuild the temple. Because in 576, they come in and destroy the, the temple. So God allows the people to go back to Zerubbabel and ne Ezra and Nehemiah. We, we're probably familiar with that story. And they come back and they um, rebuild the, the temple. And eventually they rebuild the walls. Um, and, um, and so now we're in, in the year 400, 433 B.C. Okay, so we're, we're right about here. So what have, what have we seen so far? Have we seen, um, have we seen since the beginning that people are getting better and better? Not really. We're seeing disaster after disaster. And yet, God has his people. He has his people. You know, somewhere in here, there was a guy named Enoch. And he said he was a faithful man. In the midst of all the other nonsense that was going on, God took him up. Um, before the flood. So he wasn't, he wasn't part of the people that God was judging the reason for. You know what? I bet there's a lot of people um, who just serve God with all their heart, mind, and strength during that time too that just aren't recorded in the history books. So now we're here 400-some years before um, redemption. They don't know redemption is coming then. And there's 400 years 
of silence. Now, that doesn't mean God's not working. It just means in the scriptures, there's nothing recorded of what's going on in terms of the kingdom is not healthy. There are the um, interesting, very interesting period of time. Let me just share a little bit. So they came back, they built the temple, but they, they weren't governing themselves. Okay, they were under occupation. So then the Persians come in and they conquer Babylon and they rule the area for a while. Then the Greeks, Alexander the Great comes in and he dominates the area and introduces a Greek language. It's just a really interesting thing, Greek culture and language, which stayed their way. And the scriptures, of course, are written in Greek. So God had his whole hand on this. Then Egypt, some of um, Egypt comes in and occupies it for a while. Then Syria occupies the area for a while. Then there's their Maccabean re- revolt. And they, for some period, there's a little bit where they're kind of doing a little bit better. And then Rome comes in. Okay? And Rome just dominates the thing heavy-handedly, um, comes in and... Um, rules this area of the earth, okay? The Roman Empire. So we have 400 years of, from a scriptural standpoint, silence. But we know what God is like. He's still working on people's hearts, right? And so, imagine yourself, you're, you're, a, you're a Jew, okay? From the tribe of Judah. And you know your history. You know your history because you have an oral... You don't, you, don't have, you don't have a Bible like we do because they didn't have personal Bibles back then. But you know the history. You know all this is going on and you're going, Mom, Dad, wasn't there supposed to be like a Messiah coming? Wasn't, didn't he promise a Redeemer? Um, man, this is pretty hopeless times. Um, now would be a really good time for a Redeemer to come. I mean, we have our temple, but things are still a mess. The Romans are just, oh, this is, oh, this is, this is bad, bad news. Hoping, that's what the guys said in, in Luke when they were walking along. They said, this is our hope. We're hoping for a redeemer. <laughs> it's like, we've been waiting almost 4,000 years for a redeemer. Um, and then... And then all of a sudden, there's some angelic visitations. An angel visits um, one of the priests, Zechariah, when he's doing his temple service. And, just, and does, uh, he sees a vision, and he can't talk. And he says, God's going to do something amazing in your, in your barren wife's um, womb. And a, and a man's going to come forth, and he's going to be the forerunner for this Messiah, this Redeemer. It's like, whoa. I mean, his ears went up, and he, he can't even talk and tell his wife about it yet. But it's like, whoa, are you serious then? And then, um, and then an angel visits another um, young woman and gives her um, a visitation and says, in you, the Redeemer is going to be born. And, of course, she said, how, how can that be? I, I'm, not, I'm not even married. And, um, <clears throat> and then, so is it any wonder when we open our Bibles to Matthew, and we turn to Matthew chapter 1. If you're like me, I grew up going, um, let's skip that because let's get to the real part of the story. Uh, let's, let's, uh, let's skip chapter 1 and go to chapter, at least verse 21, because genealogy, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat. When the writer of Matthew starts with a genealogy, what is he saying? 
He's making a statement. He's saying, you know those prophets, Isaiah 700 years before Jesus was born, and um, um, all these different prophecies in the Old Testament? He said, we're going to start off this writing of this New Testament to show that this Messiah has the right to claim the Messiah based on the fact that he is from the bloodline of Abraham, that he is from the tribe of Judah, that he is, he is a descendant of David, the king, and he has the right. And so they show the genealogies. And so it starts right off with the genealogy saying, this is proof that he, is, he can cl- make the claims from a bloodline perspective that he has the claims to be the Messiah, the promised one, the, the anointed one, the Christ. By the way, Christ isn't Jesus' last name, in case you didn't know that. Christ means anointed. It means the anointed one. Um, it's uh, in Greek is um, is um, anointed in in the Hebrew language. It's it's Messiah. So um, John the Baptist, this this miracle child, grows up and and um, when um, John the Baptist is in the river and he sees Jesus, what he says? He says, "Behold." The Lamb of God, which does what? Takes away the sin of the world. So, in John's mind, he's thinking, you know what? Back when Moses gave the law, 1,500 years ago, when he talked about um, the Passover, the perfect, perfect lamb that had to be shed on the, the blood. <clears throat> you know, Abraham, he's probably thinking about Abraham when he offered up Isaac too, and that God provided a ram, a lamb for himself. And maybe even the clothes that, um, that God provided, he killed some kind of animal to provide clothing for Adam and Eve, okay? So we're talking about the Passover. We're talking about 1,500 years of a tabernacle or temple where they're doing blood sacrifices every day, a lamb sacrifice every day is a picture of saying, you know what? Sin is really... It's serious. And so we send a perfect um, God coming. I mean, Emmanuel means what? God with us. What an amazing thing that God would choose to take on a, a human body, fully divine, fully human, and be the provision for this, for this problem that all of us have. Um, and it says in John chapter 1, it says, and the, world, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, the word dwelt really means it's tabernacled. He tabernacled with us. He's using the same language when he's talking about the tabernacle in Moses. They, they walked for the presence of God, walked uh, or went through the, the wilderness until it came to be a temple. And not only is it Emmanuel, God with us, <laughs> but then the amazing, totally incredible idea that it's not just God with us, but then God in us. When we have our sins cleansed, that the Spirit of God would actually indwell us. This holy, holy, holy God would come in and say, I'm going to indwell you and I'm going to manifest myself in, in you. And I go, what? That's something that Paul says is a mystery of, that they couldn't even imagine in the Old Testament, this whole this concept. So sometimes obedience seems a little bit hard. Some things that God asks us is like, not to worry. Are you serious? <laughs> I, 
have every reason in the world to worry, don't you? I can make you a long list of all the things I, I, I could justify my worrying about that are real concerns, at least to me. And yet God says, God says every time, almost every time he appears to somebody in this whole story, he says, oh, by the way, don't be afraid. Um, he tells Joshua to go in. He says, don't be afraid. When an angel comes and visits, he says, don't be afraid. Um, um, he says, fear me. Fear me, God. So as you look at the story, do you, do you, um, do you see that, that God knows what he's doing? Um, do you see that he is trustworthy? Do you see that he has love and compassion? Do you see he's, he's saying, you know what, I want you to know how, I want you to understand my glory, that this, this, this story of history is, is just not about Moses being rich or Abraham having lots of sheep and cattle, about David having a nice temple, about the, the, the prophets being comfortable. You know, Isaiah, he asked Isaiah to go prophesy. He said, by the way, the people aren't going to listen to you. In Isaiah 6, right after Isaiah 6, he gives him this great vision, touches this, his tongue with coals, and he says, oh, by the way, the people aren't going to listen to you. But I still want you to go proclaim this truth that I'm asking you to do. Um, because God deserves, he's worthy of our praise, of our devotion, of our affections. And, um, and without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin, it says in Hebrews. And so this is a big, big, big interrelated story. Every part of it, it was designed from the very, before the foundations of the world. Um, so that we would say, you know what? God says, I want you, I want to invite you to be part of this story. So, you know, if we extended this another um, 2,000 years to where we are, that's me. And that's you. We're a little dot on this line. Um, and yet God loves us. And he says, I love you so much I came to the earth to, to have my son um, pay for your sins, and he invites us to be, to be in in union with him, to have our sins forgiven. And for me, it's good to revisit the big story. To um, to say, man, we have a, such an incredible, loving, trustworthy God. So sometimes when I'm tempted to whine and complain about how long something's taking. Um, or maybe what, what maybe something God's asked me to do seems bigger than, bigger than um, I really want to do <laughs> or feel capable. I remember I've got a big God, a good God who is trustworthy, who is sovereign, who knows what he's doing, has a plan. And he knows he has a plan for each one of us. He knows where he's headed in us. And he's, God's never apologized to me yet. Never called me up on the phone, left a text to make, say, sorry, Steve, I asked you to obey me. Um, he delights in obedience. He delights in obedience. Um, and you know, these are great stories. We love great stories, don't we? We love the stories of testimonies of God where he just comes through. But um, you know what? You know how you get a great story? <laughs> you obey what God tells you to do. Because those were not easy tasks that he asked these people to do. Uh, when he asked David to go 
fight, fight this ridiculously big giant. It was not an easy thing to do. But he had a great story as, as a result of it. Oftentimes we run the other way like Jonah did. We say, we don't want that kind of story. You know, the story of Jonah could have been completely different. It could have been a really short book and no fish in the story at all. The only reason there's a fish is because he was disobedient. Get swallowed and spit it up and... Um, and um, it could have been he just obeyed God. He went and preached to Nineveh. They repented, and he went home. Um, I'm trying to keep many of those fish stories out of my life as I can. <laughs> um, they make for great children's story books, but it's like, tell you what, I don't want that kind of stuff. Man, I want to I I follow Jesus and, um, um, because he is good. He's worthy. So, Father, I just thank you. As we, we look back over the, just the big picture, we just reminded boy, we really do need a Redeemer. <laughs> we are so grateful that um, we are, we're part of your story, that you love us, you're so trustworthy that you know us by name as we sang earlier and we may not make it into a book but God we're in your book and um, we just thank you for that Lord we, we ask for the grace to um, to be, be numbered among the people who have faith who agree with you Lord I want to agree with you whenever you say something say, yes, I agree with you, and then I want to act accordingly. I ask your blessing, Lord Jesus, on this body of believers, that they would be, they'd be known as a people of faith who took you at your word and trusted you. In Jesus' name, amen.